you guys have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 9. We're in Mark chapter 9 tonight. Good to see everybody. Well, thanks. I appreciate that a lot. There's one. At least one of, well, at least one of you. I'm just playing. I'm playing. I'm not, that, I'm not that sensitive. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do. Uh, I'm going to read verse 1, and uh, before I do, I just want to let you guys know, I leave for Mexico tomorrow just for two days, and I'm going to be down at our training center. We are graduating something like 16 or 17 students from our church planting program. Uh, they've been, they're great, young and old, lots of young, but um, they have really grown over the last couple of months, and I know you've been praying for them, so thank you for that, and uh, it is a great crop of church planters, and we're really believing God for great things. And so if you all could uh, continue to pray for them, pray for their graduation on Saturday, and then, you know, that God would really guide them and direct them for the next steps that he has called them to take. I'm going to read verse 1, and we're going to pray. The Bible says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Father, thank you for your word tonight, God, thank you for the disclosure of your Son, who is the perfect image of the Father. Thank you for his glory, and thank you for his compassion. Thank you that he is the, the perfect man, and that he is altogether at the same time God. It, he is God incarnate. And we pray tonight that you would open up our eyes of understanding and the revelation of the Son. We pray, God, that you would minister to us right where we're at. Each of us have a different set of needs tonight. And God, we've no doubt that you're able this evening through your word to meet the needs that we have. And God, we pray especially tonight that you would stir our faith. God, stir us to be believing. God, help us to resist the temptation of doubt and disbelief. And God set before us a, a very clear path of promise that we can walk in to experience the fullness of your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Somebody said this. I don't know who it was. I for sure agree with it. Being a Christian would be great if it wasn't so hard. <laughs> Being a Christian would be great if it wasn't so hard. And, and I know um, this is probably not like the slogan that that you would want uh, on a church, or this is not for sure an evan evangelist slogan, um, but nevertheless, it's true, right? I mean, would you raise your hand if you think that that's true? Hey, listen, let me say it like this. Christianity is great no matter what, but it is really hard sometimes. It is hard. There are ups and there are downs. There are mountaintop experiences, and then there are really deep valleys that we have. You know, and the Proverbial saying, what, what goes up must come down, I think is, it is true for the Christian. There are times where, you know, the experience that we have with God is just uh, one of elation and, and, and revelation and sweetness, like that time of worship that we just had. You for sure can sense the presence of God and, and it's sweet and it's rich. And then you also know at the same time you're going to walk out the door and someone's going to cut you off. And you're going to get a flat tire, you know, and someone's going to give you a hard time. And, and, you know, someone's going to be doing their makeup at the light when it turns green. And you got like, you know the difficulties we have as Christians, right? I mean, it's a hard life that, that we live. 
You know what I'm saying. And I think, I think sometimes, uh, while we know there's going to be these great, glorious moments, these mountaintop experiences, sometimes we're not prepared for the valley. Uh, it's almost as if when we're in the valley, we, we take it like a shock, like we're surprised, you know, and, and we talk like that to God. It's like, what is this about? And we want that perpetual mountaintop experience. By the way, that perpetual mountaintop experience is going to happen after you die, all right? Well, thanks for coming to church tonight. But, you know, when, when you breathe your last breath, we don't have to fear death. You know, death for us is like, I mean, this may sound weird to say it like this, but death for us is like a friend, right? The victory, the sting of death has been taken away by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we don't fear death. We know that we can actually embrace it because it means everlasting glory, and so that expectation, that longing you have for this perpetual mountaintop, I'm just not trying to discourage you right now, but the truth is that that's coming after this life. But I will say this, that you can experience the beautiful, powerful presence of God when you're on the mountaintop and when you're in the valley, and when you're in the valley. And I think oftentimes, you know, that's where the rubber really hits the road for us. You might be thinking, well, why are you saying all of this? Because tonight is just a really interesting, it is a really interesting connection of stories. We do have this amazing, glorious mountaintop experience, like literal mountaintop experience. And then we have this valley experience that is really challenging. It is adversity. It is a spiritual battle. And I think, you know, I think it's intentional that these, I mean, obviously it's intentional because it's actual history, but it is intentional. They're connected together for us tonight because I think there's a lot for us to glean. Um, I think I've learned that uh, I appreciate the mountaintop experiences because of the valleys. You know, it is the adversity and the difficulty that just gives a sweet savor for those special moments that God grants to us and gives to us. And, and so this, the glorious moment was right here in, in chapter 9. And, you know, there was this uh, prophetic anticipation that Jesus gave to his disciples, probably an enigma to them when he said it, but he said in uh, verse 1, he said, and he said to them, so he's, let me just back up. He's like, he's laid out some hard stuff. We, we talked about real discipleship last Thursday night. And the misperception that the disciples had of the messianic ministry. They got, they got the messianic part right, but they got the ministry part wrong. And so, you know, Jesus had to help them understand what his purpose was in the first coming. And of course, it was crucifixion, right? It was being treated with contempt. It was dying in our place. It was that he was a sacrifice for our sins. And it was that he would rise again on the third day. And, of course, we talked about uh, Peter's resistance to that because Peter couldn't put that within the framework of his messianic expectation, and it felt a little embarrassing to him, and so, you know, they had that interesting interchange, and then Jesus takes it one step further, and he's like, hey, listen, by the way, it's not just about the messianic ministry, it's about what you've been called to as well, because you've been, if you're my disciple, you've been called to follow in my footsteps, Right? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And in that context, uh, he's talking about the glory of God coming with the holy angels. And as he's on the topic of glory, he says, And he said to them, 
Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, now listen, this was an enigmatic statement to them because, of course, they're living in this time, space, moment, right? They can't see beyond the moment that they're living in, and so they're just left to assumption. As we look back, um, there, there are still interesting words, right? There are some that are standing here, so we're talking about the 12 disciples, some of the 12 disciples who will not experience physical death until they themselves see in a physical sense the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is not talking about his second coming and the institution of the golden age or the messianic era uh, because all of the disciples, historically we know, have died and um, are with God in heaven because the Bible says it's appointed to man to die once and then the judgment. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So what, what does this verse mean? Well, as we read on, we understand what Jesus was talking about. The Bible says in verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In other words, I don't care how great your laundromat is. Never could have gotten the clothes this white. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So, so what Jesus was talking about here was this particular moment that we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, there were a set of disciples that were going to have the opportunity to see the revelation of the glory of, of the Son while he was still in the midst of his incarnation. Of course, you know Jesus... Uh, regularly picked Peter, James, and John for very special moments. Um, and I'm sure if you're a student of Scripture, you can think of some of those moments right now. Obviously, you think of the Garden of Gethsemane and how um, he brought them into that very intimate moment because he wanted them to be praying with him. There was that uh, moment where they experienced the raising of Jairus' daughter. They had the sweet privilege of seeing that with their very own eyes. And then, of course, the Mount Transfiguration. Some people say, well, Peter, James, and John, you know, they were the eminent apostles. Others say they were part of the remedial crew. They always got themselves in trouble. Uh, Peter, for sure, had foot and mouth disease. Not foot and mouth, but foot in mouth disease. And so, you know, it might be that, you know, Jesus had to keep these guys kind of close to the vest because they were always getting themselves, like I said, in trouble. In fact, James and John were nicknamed Sons of Thunder because, I mean, they were the Harley-riding, long-beard-growing, uh, just rugged, gnarly guys. And, you know, it's interesting to, to think about John like that because John also, at the same time, we'll talk about this on Sunday or some Sunday, he was also a sensitive guy. He was a poet. He was a dreamer. Um, he, he, like I said, you know, was emotional. And so... So it is an inter interesting uh, 
psychological profile for the Apostle John, but they, they also seem to be always getting themselves in trouble. All I'm trying to say to you not, tonight is, maybe that's you, maybe you're always getting yourself in trouble, that's why you need to, need to stay as close as you possibly can to Jesus Christ, all right? I mean, so I identify with that. There, going up to the Mount of Transfiguration, many people believe this to be Mount Hermon. Uh, it has an 11,000 foot summit, and others believe it to be Mount Tabor. Uh, no one necessarily knows for sure. We do know there was a lot of hiking. Uh, they were praying. Uh, as it was with these three guys, when they prayed, they fell asleep. Other gospel accounts tell us um, if you fall asleep while you pray, listen, you're in good company because even some of the apostles did that. And then they were awakened to this amazing moment, right? Their, their eyes were opened, and before their very eyes, Jesus was being transfigured, the Bible says. He was being transfigured. The Greek word is metamorpho, where we get our English word metamorphosis from. And it's a really, really significant term. Um, maybe for some of you, you know you're students of Scripture, and so you're thinking about, uh, Moses uh, on, on Mount Sinai, uh, and you remember how the presence of God came down on the mountain, and literally the face of Moses was shining. It was the Shekinah glory. It left an imprint. There was this reflection of God's glory that was emanating from the person of Moses. This is not the same thing. This is not the same thing. This is not Jesus reflecting the glory of the Father. This is the glory of Jesus emanating from his being because Moses was reflecting the glory of God. Jesus was shining the glory of God. Those are two significantly different things. And it was evidently overwhelming for the three of these individuals as they shared their story and as, you know, it was written down in Scripture, it was, uh, it was something to behold. I mean, it was beyond what their words could even um, explain or describe. His face was shining, absolutely white. The Bible says uh, there were flashings of lightning. And then, of course, as we read here in Mark's account, his clothes were so white they were brighter than any launderer could launder. And so, literally, the glory of Christ was shining through his clothing. What an amazing thing to be able to see. And the reality is this. In the incarnation, the, the revelation here is of his shrouded glory. So, remember, the incarnation of Christ where he added to himself a physical human body, it shrouded his glory. And these Disciples had the opportunity in this very intimate and beautiful moment to really see the fullness of the true nature of Christ shining through. I mean, what a powerful revelation this would have been for them to, to have settled in their heart not only the truth of his humanity, but the reality of his deity. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, kind of uh, conveying the reality of the shrouded glory of Christ in the incarnation, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So in other words, totally God on equal footing, the Father and the Son are one. But in the incarnation, the Bible goes on to say, he emptied himself, 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then it goes on to say, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself. And so listen, remember, as you read the gospel accounts, uh, the, the great glory of Christ that he had with all of the holy angels and the Father before the incarnation in this moment was revealed. It was re- revealed in a real, present way in this moment, and it also had prophetic import as well because it was a picture of the kingdom that was to come. So the Bible goes on to say, the story gets even better, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter, as Peter always does, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make one, excuse me, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then we'll read verse 7 in just a second. And so we have the glory of Christ being revealed to them and then at the same time appearing next to Jesus were Elijah and Moses. Now just think about this from the perspective of these three good Jewish boys who have always had this imminent respect for Moses. You guys know what Moses represents in the Old Testament? What does he represent? Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents, Elijah represents the prophets. And so if you're thinking, like outside of Abraham, if you're thinking about the canon of the Old Testament, and oftentimes when we're talking about the whole of the Old Testament, it is reduced to the law and the prophets, right? That's the vast majority of the Old Testament scriptures. And the two greatest figures in the Old Testament with respect to the law and the prophets, well, one was Moses because, of course, Moses, the, the law came through Moses. And John says that in John chapter 1. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Moses represents the law. And then Elijah was considered to be the greatest of all the prophets. I mean, he was a, a, a prophet that was powerfully used And then we're going to see here in just a minute, he was also prophesied to precede the Messiah when he came. And so so here, you've got this amazing moment. I mean, look, I don't know. I don't know how they recognized Moses and Elijah. It was evident. They knew it. And it would have been a pretty extraordinary thing. And so you can't really give Peter too hard of a time for responding the way that he did. And, let, let, and let's just kind of like pick apart what he says. First of all, he says rabbi. So strike one, all right? Strike one in this sense. Yes, he is a rabbi. And yes, the disciples did call Jesus rabbi. And he for sure was their teacher. But he missed the mark. God's going to correct him here in a minute. He missed the mark because he's not just a rabbi. He's the son of God. And God's going God's to teach Peter that lesson uh, in such a nice, gentle way. The second thing that Peter says is, it is good that we're here. Now, let me just say, I got no problem with this this statement. And I think I probably would have made that statement too. You know, I mean, I think think Peter was right to say, hey, this is, I like this. I like this. I think we could just hang here for a while. I think we could just linger in this moment. You know, And, and, and then going on to say, why not make three tents? You know, let's just, let's just spend some time and soak this in. And why would we go down into the valley anyway? Like, like, let's, just, like let's just call it a day and let's just establish this moment as the moment that lasts forever. And I think, you know what? I know how Peter feels. 
And I don't give Peter a hard time for this because when God gives you a mountaintop experience, man, you want to hang there. You want to, you want to linger there. You know what those times are like in your devotional moments where God, you got the Bible open and you, and you, got, um, you got some sweet communion music playing. I've been listening to... I've been listening to a guy named Fernando Ortega, and this, for sure, he's an, he's an older dude, all right? But he's got, um, he's got some CDs, and they're just all hymns. And it's just been so sweet to have my devotional time with God in the Scripture, in prayer, with hymns playing. In my backyard, right, with plants growing, sun shining. You'd... Exactly. And I'm like, God, I... I thank you for what I get to do, but like, let's just call it a day right here. This is just awesome. It's great. I don't want to leave. It's a special moment, right? It's a special moment. I think church is like that in Las Vegas. I think church is like an oasis. You know, some people, you know, they come to church or we have pastors that come here or, you know, we just are recently uh, candidating somebody for human resources and, and, you know, they're from the Bible Belt and there's a, there's a church on every corner, and Christianity is part of the culture, and everyone's talking about church. In fact, if you don't talk about church, there's something wrong with you. And I'm like, well, let me tell you a little bit about Las Vegas, right? Las Vegas is rugged. Las Vegas is rough. Like, people work down in all of that, you know, where there are the gates of hell, and we have the great privilege of reaching in and seeing people rescued out of the chaos and the madness of all of that. And not only that, but you know when you're out in it and it's all around you and you're inundated by it. You come through these doors and you sit in these seats and you relish in the presence of God, right? You t- it's like, it is like fresh water pouring over your thirsty soul. It is, it is an oasis, and I'm grateful for that, and I pray that it is like that for you. It's like that for me. And, you know, I spend a lot of time here, but still, when we start worship service, I'm like, I cannot wait, you know, for the songs to begin to be sung because it is so good to be in the presence of God. Don't get me wrong. The presence of God is everywhere at all time. We need to learn to live in his presence but it's just something special. And so I, you know, all I'm saying is I understand why Peter wants to linger in this moment. So he gets that right. But he says, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now from the hospitality side of things, Eastern mindset, you know, you're, you're being considered of everyone. I understand why Peter says this, but the issue is he is seeing them with equality, and that's a problem, right? Because Elijah and Jesus and Moses are not all on the same plane. They're not all on the same plane. And in the Jewish mind, like before Messiah came, you had the prophet and you had the law, and there was no one greater than the prophet and the law. And so Peter's failure in this moment as he expresses the equality of these three significant figures becomes an opportunity for God to set the record straight. And I just want to say to you tonight, thank God that he can take our failures and leverage them as opportunities to teach us lessons, right? 
I mean, thank God for that. I was listening to someone today on this portion of Scripture, and they were just hammering Peter, like, oh, Peter, what an idiot. Better to shut your mouth, right? I think the statement that was made was something like, better for people to think that you're a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. And, and, and while that's true, all right, while that's true, better just to not say anything than to open up your mouth and for people to be like, oh, yeah, I knew, I thought that person was an idiot. Now I know for sure. But, but I think that's just a little, I think it's a little tough on Peter. And I think the truth is this, that, that God can take even our mistakes, even when we step out of line and say things that we shouldn't say. If we're humble and we place those situations in his hands, you know God is able to turn them around, use them to teach us a lesson, and use them as opportunities to minister to other people. This is really not the point of the message tonight, but I do just want to say to you, there have been so many times where I have said things that I shouldn't have said, and, and after the words come out of my mouth, they're followed up by praying, by beseeching, and by pleading with the Lord to clean up my mess. And I will just tell you, God has always been so faithful to help me out in the midst of my failure. And tonight, if you're in that spot and, and you know, maybe you've said some things you shouldn't have said, maybe, maybe you didn't tell the truth, maybe like you fleshed out on somebody, maybe you've misused your social media platform, you know, there's an opportunity for you to not only own that, but for God to turn that around and to use it as an as an opportunity for him to glorify himself. Well, what happens here, um, there is, Peter says what he says because he's afraid. You know, he's one of those guys where it's like, man, it's just silence, and it's better to say something to, than to have silence. And while he's speaking, in fact, one gospel account says, while he was speaking, he was interrupted by God. And a cloud, verse 7 overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and this is what the voice said. It's the voice of the Father. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So, so Peter's in the middle of his like pontification, and God's like, the son just interrupts him, right? Just straight up interrupts him. And he says, this is my beloved son. Peter, you're seeing this all wrong. Like you've got this picture of equality from the perspective of, of Judaism, but I'm doing a new thing, and this isn't just any rabbi. This is, my, this is my son. This is my beloved son. And while I want you to hear the prophets, and while I want you to hear the law, above all things, you need to hear them. You, excuse me. You need to hear him. I don't know I don't know what many voices you have speaking into your life right now because you know we live in a culture where there is just so much noise. And the, and the Father says to you tonight, I want a mountaintop experience for you. It may mean that you've got to take a hike. I didn't mean it like that. It may mean that you need to take a hike and get some space and have some solitude Sometimes set apart, you need to get out of the madness so that you can hear my voice because I want you to listen to my son. I want you to listen to my son. You know, oftentimes in life, I've discovered that when I'm in times of confusion or, or doubt or I may not be able to see the path before me clearly, all of that signifies that I just need to stop everything else and spend some time with the Lord. 
So there's this beautiful mountaintop experience that they had. This clearly was a seminal moment in Peter, James, and John's life. It did for sure settle uh, in their hearts, their faith in who Christ was. And Peter, in fact, would talk about this moment years later uh, when he wrote his second epistle. And he said this, he said, for we did not follow cleverly devised, this is 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's just, just uh, recounting this moment. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in, in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so he's just saying to these believers, listen, we know. It's not myth. It's not fable. It's not fairy tale. Because we saw with our own eyes, we heard with our own ears, and the prophetic word that God has given to us is sure. It is like a lamp in the midst of darkness that you can anchor your souls to until the Lord comes back again. Everything, everything that God reveals to you on the mountain will be tested in the valley. Verse 9 says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one that they had seen excuse me, no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So, you know, listen, they're, they're still confused. It's not the first time he's mentioned that he's going to rise from the dead. Remember, to rise from the dead means that he would physically die. That was not within their messianic equation. And so they were still struggling with this, even though some six days earlier he had said that he would suffer uh, contempt at the hand of the religious leaders that he would be killed and that he would rise again. So they're trying to sort it out. It's created questions in their life. And so the Bible says in verse 11, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son? You asked him a question back. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So on the way down, he charges them, hey, listen, keep this to yourself until after the resurrection. And they're looking at each other and like, we don't even get what this means, that you're going to rise from the dead because we don't understand how it is that Messiah is going to die in the first place. And not only that, but Elijah hasn't come. So if Elijah hasn't come and you're saying Messiah is going to die, something doesn't seem right according to the prophecies that have been given. And so Jesus says, no, listen, Elijah does come. Elijah is going to proceed. Elijah is going to prepare. Malachi chapter 3, uh, Malachi chapter 4, and Isaiah chapter 40. These are three sections of Scripture that lay out for us what it means about Elijah preceding the coming of the Messiah, he says, 
But I have a question for you. How is it that the scripture also says the Son of Man is going to suffer contempt? And so, of course, there were all, portion, all sorts of portions of scripture that talked about the Messiah suffering. For instance, Isaiah chapter 53. And so he just says to them, these things that deal with the suffering of the Messiah are laid out in prophecy as well. Elijah is going to come again. Messiah is going to suffer. And not only that, but Elijah has already come. And Matthew's account says that they understood later that he was talking about John the Baptist. And so Jesus says, Elijah is going to come from our point of view, before the second coming, but Elijah has already come. He has already proceeded. He has fulfilled that messianic ministry in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and they treated him with contempt, but the first coming of the Messiah isn't about establishing the glorious kingdom. The first coming of Messiah is about suffering for the sin of humanity. They're having this conversation on the way down. The Bible says in verse 14, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So they're coming down the mountain. It's been this glorious revelation, and now there is a, a battle in the valley. I said this to you at the very beginning of uh, this message. Um, I'm just going to say it again. Every mountaintop experience that you have also means at the same time the valley of adversity is waiting. Um, obviously, there are times we wish that wasn't the case, but it is just the reality. I want to remind you tonight, though, that it is the fruit, it is the valley where the fruit grows, not the mountaintop. So while the valley may be difficult, remember, that's where the fruit grows. In other words, it's in the valley that God does the deep, powerful, life-changing things in your life. The mountaintop experiences are amazing and extraordinary, but it really is when you're in the valley that the revelation that God has given to you is going to be tested. Now, of course, when Elijah came down from Carmel, Jezebel was waiting for him. When Moses came down from Sinai, the children of Israel were in sin. And then Christ, when he comes down from Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor, he has the scribes and the Pharisees and this demon waiting for him. When he gets down, these religious leaders are arguing with his disciples. And it would appear that what Jesus does is he steps in and he, like a good shepherd, right? He, like a good shepherd state farm is there. I don't know why that just crossed my mind. I have no idea. On Sunday, it was the Rolling Stones. And so, and, uh, and Andy has his own state farm agency. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's what it is. Um, yeah, I don't know. Where was I? I don't even know where I was at. Oh, yeah, like a good shepherd. Like a... So like a good shepherd, he comes down and these religious leaders are giving the nine remaining disciples a really hard time. And so, so he steps in, right? He steps in. It is his rod and staff that comforts us. It's his staff that pulls back the wayward sheep. It's his rod that beats down the wolf or the lion that's attacking the sheep. And that's what Jesus does. He steps in. He's not playing. Hey, don't mess with my boys. Let me just like put it in my own words. Don't mess with my boys. By the way, he knows how to protect you. 
He knows how to protect you. He knows how to keep you. You know, he knows how to secure you. As a believer in Christ, you're not just out there on your own. You're not unprotected. You don't live without an advocate. You have the Son of God. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. You know, I know it's like typical for us to pray like a hedge of protection. And, and I don't really, I don't understand that because I'm like, I don't, I don't want a hedge. I, I, I don't want a plant. I don't want a plant around me, God. I don't need, I don't need like a bush. I don't need a bush around me to protect me, God. I need like warring angels. I need the angel of the Lord. I need your divine presence. And that's exactly what God provides for you. I love just the tender care that he has for his disciples. And he steps in and he says, you got a problem with my boys, you got a problem with me, right? You got a problem with my boys, you got a problem with me. And there was a problem because the Bible says in verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. So there's a demonic spirit that has possessed this young boy. Father does the right thing, looking for Jesus to exercise the demon from his son. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able so, like, we're going to talk about this father in just a second, but dad's got this, this issue with his son. He does the right thing. He's heard about all that Christ is able to do. Obviously, he's in this place of brokenness and need. He comes onto the scene, and he gets to something he didn't expect, right? Jesus, along with three of the other disciples, principal disciples or whatever you want to call them, you know, they're nowhere to be found. And so he's got the leftover nine. He's got, he, you know, he's got the B team at best, and, and he asked the B team, right, second string, hey, listen, guys, you know, do me a solid here. Do me a solid and help me with my son. He's demon-possessed. And, and the boys, you know, second string, they do everything that they can. Now, listen, these, it's not as if these, these disciples had not already experienced the power of God working through their life. They've already been sent out as the seventy. They, they've already come back with a declaration. Listen, this was absolutely amazing because... People are experiencing healing, and even demons are subject to your name. And, and yet, they've got this situation where no matter what they do, no matter how hard they try, this demon was not able to be exercised from this boy. Verse 19 says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So a lot of debate over who Jesus is talking to here. I mean, it's a pretty general statement of faithless generation. Is he talking to his disciples? Some people say that he's looking at his disciples and it's kind of like, really, really? I mean, really, guys, after all that we've been through, you know, you can't exercise enough faith to help this kid out? Or is he speaking in a general sense about the, the unbelieving condition of the children of Israel, that there just was this, you know, when he came on the scene, he had the rightful expectation of the Jewish people believing and receiving. They'd been set up for this very moment. Sunday, we're going to talk about all the things that God said they should be looking for when Messiah shows up, and they were all laid out. I mean, he had fulfilled 
so many messianic expectations and still there was an absence of faith in the people and I, I was thinking about this man you know what fatigues the heart of Christ because that's it's a powerful expression here it's a, an expression of disappointment and fatigue and what is it that fatigues the heart of Christ it's unbelief it's unbelief oh faithless generation how long am I to be with you like ponder that for a minute think about that for a minute you know, I, I think in our lives, you know, sometimes we can be so set on the wheel of performance. We're just constantly thinking about what we do for God and the different religious hoops that we need to jump through to, to make Jesus happy. And I just want to tell you tonight, what is it that makes him happy? Faith is what makes him happy. Belief is what makes him happy. Taking him at his word is what makes him happy. And unbelief from his people fatigues and and you know just be gracious with me when i say it like this because some of you might be thinking well what does that mean it fatigues the heart of christ uh, it burdens the heart of christ for sure he was burdened bible says in verse 20 and they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him immediately it convulsed the boy so when the spirit saw jesus immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth and Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he, the father, said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. And I, listen, I just want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of this father as he's communicating this and the grief, right, that he's bearing on his heart. But if you can do anything, have compassion on who? Have compassion on us. Not just on my son, but... But, but, Lord, on all of us, on our family, like we are in the valley of the shadow of death, have compassion on us and help us. And what does Jesus say? The Bible says, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I love the father's faith here, right? And you for sure could just feel the emotion pouring through his heart. He had done the right thing. He'd brought his son. He hit a wall, an obstacle with nine disciples who were unable to exercise this demon. And he was dealing with a situation that had clearly impacted his family over the course of many years, right? Jesus knows how long this boy's been suffering, but he wants to give the Father an opportunity to, to fully pour his heart out. You know you need that. You know you need to do that with the Lord. He knows anyway. Like, don't get me wrong. Of course, he knows every single detail about your life. But it is so important for you and for me to pour our whole burden out to him. Sometimes, you know, we have the tendency to be a little resistant in that and, you know, for many different reasons, sometimes we're ashamed because we aren't as far along in our faith as we know we ought to be. Sometimes, you know, we've, we feel wrongly that we don't want to burden God, right? And this sounds like, this sounds ridiculous, but I know, I know this because people say this to me. Pastor, you know what? I don't want to bother God with all my issues. And I'm like, bother him. He can handle it. He can handle it. And, and not only that, he wants to hear it. He want, and not only that, but you need it. Yeah. 
Like you've been holding on to all this stuff and it is stirring in you like a festering toxin. It is a poison in your soul. And you know what you need to do. What you don't need to do is try to numb it with alcohol or with drugs. What you don't need to do is seek some experience to distract you. What you don't need to do is binge on Netflix for eight hours so that you can just, you know, alleviate yourself for a moment. What you don't need to do is take to social media and rant on somebody else. What you need to do is fall on your face before the Lord and pour your whole heart out. Pour out the poison, right? Pour it out to him because he wants to hear it and he invites this father into this situation because he's giving this father an opportunity to get rid. Listen, I know sometimes, especially as guys, right? We're tough. We can handle it. We got this, God. We're good to go. And we have this veneer of strength. And the truth is this, you don't need to be like that before your heavenly father, right? You don't need to have a show of strength. God doesn't need to, you know, to see all your tattoos. God doesn't, need to, God doesn't need to hear about how strong and able you are. Like you can cry like a little baby before your heavenly father and it's okay. It's okay. He, he, wants, he wants that type of raw, intimate relationship with you. And I'm just saying, like when those walls start to come down, when those walls start to come down, the walls of pretense, the walls of falsehood, the walls of like, I've got this all under control, I'm a man, I can handle it, you know, which is just a bunch of nonsense. When those walls start to come down, that's when the true work of God begins in your life. You know, you can sit in a seat in a church and be the tough guy who doesn't need God, but the truth is this, you need God more than anybody else. You need him, and he's present to help you. And what does Jesus do? He gives this he gives his father an opportunity to pour his whole heart out, to, to go through the story of his son's life, to express his need, not just for the family, but for him, not just for the son, excuse me, but for himself and his family. And the father says, if you can do anything, check this out, this is big, if you can do anything, and notice what Jesus says, Jesus says, if you can, like just the flip of words here, He's like, if you can, and Jesus says, no, the issue isn't whether I can or not, because I can. No, I can. Like, that's not the question. I can. The question is, can you? Well, can you what? Can you believe? Can you believe? Can you put your trust and faith in me? Can you take this difficult moment that is full of obstacles and here, even when you thought the healing was going to come, you came into something you didn't expect. I wasn't present and my disciples weren't even able and you're more discouraged now than you ever have been. And I'm saying to you, it's not hopeless. It's not over. In this moment, you need to make a choice. The choice is with you whether or not you are going to believe because... If you can, all, this is such a powerful statement, all things are possible for one who believes. Do you guys believe that tonight? Do you believe it tonight? There's a lot of unbelief going on in this chapter for the father. You know, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. How many times have you said that? For the disciples, he says to them, it's because of your unbelief. For the people, he says, oh, faithless generation. And so this whole scene becomes an opportunity for Jesus to express how important walking by faith is. 
how important living your life by faith is. And Christian, I'm saying to you, you have every reason to believe it. You have every reason to believe. He has given you so many reasons. First and foremost, who he is. He is the one who was just transfigured. He is God incarnate. He's the glorious one. Sam was leading us in this tonight. All of the names of Christ. He is ineffable. His, his power is immeasurable. He is absolutely almighty. He is the all-compassionate one. He is omniscient. He knows every single detail in your life. And he is present with you right now. This is who he is. And not only is it who he is, but on the cross, he has, he has declared to you that if he was willing to do that, why would he not handle everything else? And Paul says that in Romans, if God the Father delivered his own son, why would he not with him give us all good things? And so the cross is another reason. I'm just trying to convince you tonight to believe. Be believe because of who he is. Believe because of the cross. Believe because of the power of the resurrection. Believe because of the promises that he has given to you. Right? Because that's what we're called to believe in. We're not making up our own will. It's not like, hey, I want a new house with a Bentley and, you know, some new clothes. And so I'm going to believe in that. Well, great. You can believe in it all you want. But that's not the promise of God I'm talking about. You say, well, what promises are you talking about? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. It's not my job to stand here and tell you all the promises of God. You need to look into the scriptures yourself. And I'm just saying, when you start thinking like that, and you're like, you know what? I want to know what the promises are because I want to believe them. That's when your life is going to change. If you're just like sitting here during the service waiting for pastor to feed you another line of information so you can feel somehow pacified in your conscience, then you're never going to experience this in your life. All right, what are the promises of God? Dig into the scripture yourself. I mean, you're going to get a bunch when I share or when Jim shares or Tony shares or Alex shares or Brandon shares, but study the word for yourself. And then in addition to that, you have every reason to believe because of his past faithfulness. He's given you so many reasons because of what he has done already in your life. He is inviting you tonight. If your faith is challenged tonight, right now you have an opportunity it's an opportunity. It's not an obstacle. There's an opportunity for a miracle if, in fact, you will choose to believe. Verse 25 says, And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. T tonight, it's about a father's faith and the opportunity to believe. It's about the fight for a soul, right? Before this beautiful miracle is about to happen, the demon is trying to destroy this boy. And remember, we don't approach this portion of Scripture forensically, and I hear people do this all the time. There's like this forensic approach and, and all these things, you know, about spiritual warfare. And it's like, no, wait a minute, there's a boy there's a life. There's a life here that Christ cares about. There's a story about what God is doing in a soul. And God cares about people. And he cares about you. And he cares about what is happening in your life. 
And then he does lay out the pathway to victory. The Bible says in verse 28, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out but by, cannot be driven out by anything, excuse me, by anything but prayer and other translations or manuscripts add and fasting. So, of course, we see that in other gospel accounts. We will say that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Listen, what is the pathway to victory when the devil has a foothold? What is it? You tell me, what is it? It's prayer and fasting. When you pray and when you fast, you are focusing your faith. That's what's happening. You're focusing your faith. It is like, it's like a laser, right? When you're cutting something with a laser, it, it, sometimes it takes time and you've got to leave it on that spot. But over the course of time, as the laser is focused, you know what happens. It begins to cut. There's breakthrough. There's a breakthrough. Do you need breakthrough in your life? Do you need breakthrough tonight? Maybe you've tried everything but prayer and fasting. This evening, you need to take a step of faith, and you need to pray, and you need to fast, and you need to focus your faith on the Lord until you experience the breakthrough in your life. And you need to remember who your faith is in, because Jesus says in Matthew's account, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it can just be tiny. And by the way, Peter, James, and John, you know that's the case because I was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you know who I am. It's not about the size of your faith. It's not about your, the, the, the strength of your religious rituals. It's about who you're putting your faith in. You're putting your faith in God incarnate, in God incarnate. And he can bring, he can bring the breakthrough in your life. He can bring the breakthrough in the lives of the people that you love. Maybe tonight you have a kid who's not demon-possessed, although you might from time to time think that that's the case. Maybe you have a kid tonight, a child, who is struggling, you know, who is struggling. And maybe they're at home and maybe they're not at home. Uh, I love this quote, your kids can escape your presence, but they cannot escape your prayers. It's so good. It's so good, right? Let's, as the people of God, listen to what Jesus said. Let's choose to be believing, right? In the, in the face of obstacles and difficulty, let's choose to be believing. And if we need real breakthrough, let's stop playing around. Let's stop playing games. Let's stop hoping it will go away. Let's stop, you know, asking God to do something without aligning ourselves to his purpose. Let's pray. Let's fast. Let's focus our faith until we see the real breakthrough. Amen? Amen. And Father, we're thankful tonight. We're thankful tonight that that you do do this. God, you, Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the unchanging one. You are the glorious one on the Mount of Transfiguration and the one that was not only raised from the dead but ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we put our trust and faith in you tonight. We do. And we do struggle sometimes we say like the father said lord we do believe help our unbelief sometimes it just feels like our faith is a vapor it's barely there but you are willing to work with anything that we give you and so tonight i pray that there would be miracles and breakthrough god outpourings 
of supernatural power. Tonight that there would be kids that would be rescued from God from the clutches of the adversary. We know that you're mighty and able. And we, your people, are in need. Tonight as we, as we just close in this time of worship and prayer, uh, this evening, just really feel that there needs to be an opportunity for you to bring it to God, to pour out your heart. And, and you know, this is an invitation to do that here. You don't have to hold anything back from the Lord. And I, I know sometimes that, that, you know, we can be afraid. Afraid to trust. Afraid to take something that hurts and to hand it over to God and to believe Him to do something. And then all the, all the thoughts that go along with that. But tonight, He's inviting us to be believing And so Pastor Tony is just going to, and the team, they're going to lead us and however God leads them. And I want to encourage you just to, you can come tonight to to the altar here and just get on your knees and make your request known to God. Pray to Him tonight. Close this service out this little mountaintop moment with a real concrete application of what he has invited us to to pray maybe it is for a loved one maybe it is for your parents maybe it's for your kids your lost kids really tonight are you going to sit in that seat and, and be too proud to humble yourself and come forward and to lay your kid lay your child at the feet of Jesus Christ. Maybe tonight as a couple, here you're sitting and you've got a wayward child. Come forward together as husband and wife. Maybe you're a single parent. Come forward tonight. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe tonight there's a need that you have had for some time and, and you just need to pour your heart out to the Lord. This is a safe place. Tonight we have the opportunity to just to continue to meet Him in our time of need. And so this is you today tonight just you know let's all stand up and you know you come on forward and I'm not going to lead you in prayer this is just you praying to the Lord